Pastor Jonathan asked if I might help fill the pulpit this evening. Uh, this I was very pleased to do. I want to thank uh, Jeff, Jonathan, and the session for this invitation to open God's Word with you tonight. Uh, it is an honor and privilege for me to, to do so. My understanding is that Sunday evening worship at Redeemer has been informally and loosely following uh, the themes of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the questions for this evening are Westminster Shorter Catechism 91 to 93. And I'll read those and give the answers to them. Question 91, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Answer, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in them that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit uh, in them by faith receive them. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. And what are the sacraments of the New Testament? The sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. It turns out that these were the texts uh, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that you're going to uh, reflecting on or walking your way through and this evening. It also turns out uh, that this evening has been scheduled for observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And as a result, since tonight's Westminster Selection, Westminster Shorter Catechism Selection introduces the subject of the sacraments, and since we are also observing the Lord's Supper, I thought it might be profitable to devote our time together this evening to consider uh, the uh, sacraments. Tonight I want to lead us in a topical study on the nature, importance, and practical implication of the sacraments. And it is entitled, rather unremarkably, What is a Sacrament? What is a Sacrament? There is an outline of this evening's study included in the bulletin to help you capture and remember my main points. But before I begin, I would like to read through a number of Old Testament and New Testament texts that form the biblical foundation of tonight's uh, subject and study. Uh, as is your custom, I am reading from the, um, the ESV. Genesis 17, 10 through 14. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he and who, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Exodus 12, 21 to 28. This is the, the previous passage was the foundation of the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. Here is the roots of the Old Testament sacrament of Passover. Exodus 12, 21 to 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land the Lord your God will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down, bowed their heads and worshiped. And then all the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Exodus twelve forty three to 48, same, same uh, chapter, a little bit later. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall visit with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, our call to worship today. And Jesus came and said to him, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you uh, always to the end of the age. Luke 2, 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after which they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Acts 2, 37 to 42. And when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the people gathered were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 29. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, therefore, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning uh, the body eats and drinks judgment uh, on himself. And finally, Colossians 2, 8 through 14. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As we begin to talk this evening about the subject of the sacraments, I'd like to introduce them, first of all, by raising the interesting issue. Uh, The first comment I want to make is regarding their relative neglect in the Reformed Protestant community. The relative neglect in the Reformed Protestant community. It might surprise you, uh, but my observation is that for the most part, Reformed Protestants have a rather low view of the sacraments. That while we view them as religious rites of some importance, they are not something that is strongly incorporated into our normal Christian lives. It's not something that we experience day by day in a self-conscious way. And I believe that's unfortunate. How many of you woke up this morning, bounded out of bed, and exclaimed, Boy, I'm glad I'm baptized! Anyone? 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 Um, How many of you have ever had that experience? of bounding out of bed or even just declaring, boy, I'm glad I'm baptized. How many of you anticipated, longed for, and even prepared for tonight's opportunity to commune at the Lord's table? Here I suspect we might do a little better, um, uh, uh, that uh, as you knew this was coming, that you had some thoughts about it. Perhaps some of you even took some time to reflect and to prepare for the sacrament. But for the most of us, even though we greatly enjoy and we benefit from communion and the Lord's Supper, we don't experience that kind of expectation or longing except when we are confronted with it. Except when we are told, oh, today we're observing the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. And you go, oh, yeah, right, oh, yeah, good, great, great. And part of the problem may be that um, the sacraments don't seem immediate to us. But maybe also part of the problem is that whenever we discuss the sacraments uh, within our our, our community, we we tend to focus on the disputes over the sacraments, right? That the disputes, uh, the arguments, the disagreements about the sacraments have overshadowed uh, their best blessings and benefits. And I have to admit, 
there are some serious disputes uh, and disagreements about uh, the sacraments. There's difference in how many there are. Uh, within the Reformed tradition, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism reminded us, there are two New Testament sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some within the Anabaptist community, like the Mennonite community and, and other folks, argue that there are three sacraments, New Testament sacraments. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and can you think of what the third one is? Foot washing. Foot washing. Because when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and he says to them, what I have done for you, you should do for one another. Uh, some of the, in the Anabaptist uh, tradition see that as words of institution. Uh, that this is a third sacrament that reflects how we ought to pattern our lives after the lives of Jesus. Certainly when it comes to number, the Roman Catholics uh, sweep the field. They argue that there is seven. There are seven sacraments, uh, Christian sacraments, and the baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, penance, religious orders, marriage, and extreme unction, or last rites. Not only are there differences in number, there are differences uh, uh, regarding recipients uh, as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, who is to receive the Lord's Supper? Can anyone come? Whosoever will may come. Should just believers approach the Lord's table? Uh, should believers and their children uh, approach the Lord's table? The question regarding the Lord's Supper of the presence of Jesus. What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? Uh, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my body and blood. Are the elements of the bread and wine simply a symbol of Christ's body and blood? That was Zwingli's position. Do they reflect the real and genuine spiritual presence of Christ among us through the Holy Spirit? That was the position of Calvin. Are the elements actually tr transformed into the true body and blood, physical body and blood of Christ? That's the Roman Catholic understanding of transubstantiation, that it's been changed over uh, from bread and wine to the actual body and blood of Christ. Or do the elements contain uh, the real body of Christ through the omnipresence of Christ's body in, around, and through the bread and the wine? That's the Lutheran view, uh, consubstantiation. There are also differences regarding baptism. The efficacy of baptism. When does baptism become effective? Is it effective uh, when it occurs, when it's applied, as in baptismal regeneration? Or does its effectiveness or efficacy not necessarily need to be connected uh, to the time uh, uh, of its application, but it may be realized at a later point? Who should receive baptism? Should, can anyone receive baptism? Can only believers receive baptism? Or can believers and their children uh, receive baptism? And finally, what's the proper mode of baptism? That is how it should be applied. Is immersion required? That is, someone be immersed under the water in order to be truly uh, baptized? Some argue that it is. It's absolutely essential. You've not really been baptized unless you've been immersed. Others argue uh, that you haven't been baptized unless you've been tripartite immersed. That is, put under three times for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, are these is immersion either of um, one dip or three dips required, or are fusion or pouring is that appropriate or sprinkling, 
also appropriate modes of baptism. Well, just walking through that list, you can see, wow, there are a lot of questions and controversies surrounding uh, these sacraments, aren't there? And you can see why we spend all of our time or a lot of our time discussing those differences, but we don't take a lot of time to get at the core purpose of the sacraments and of their blessing uh, to us. The critical issue here then is what makes a sacrament uh, a sacrament. It's clear that the way you view what makes a sacrament a sacrament is going to make a big difference in how you sort out some of these issues. But, but tonight, I'm, I'm not interested in solving those differences uh, this evening, although what I am going to say tonight, I think are going to help you to solve some of them and resolve uh, some of them. Uh, that would take a whole series and invite me back. I'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep at it. But I'm more interested in understanding the blessings of the sacraments, especially the blessing that comes from living in the light of them every moment of our Christian walk. That is my challenge before you this evening. And this becomes possible, I think, when we understand the three key components of the sacraments laid out for you uh, in today's outline that describe for us what I believe may, what makes a sacrament uh, a sacrament. There are three elements. The sacrament is, first of all, a distinguishing mark of the people of God required by God himself. Secondly, a sacrament is an outward physical sign of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of the people of God. And thirdly, a sacrament is a seal or guarantee of God's faithfulness to his promises. Those three elements. I want to walk you through those quickly uh, and then draw some practical applications of the sacraments for us. First of all, the sacrament is a distinguishing mark of the people of God required by uh, God himself. Now, the first thing we need to recognize as we read what the Bible has to say about sacraments in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that they are given by God to distinguish the church from the world. Sacraments are given by God to distinguish the church from the world. This is true in the Old Testament, and it remains true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, circumcision was given as a covenant sign to distinguish Jews from Gentiles, from the nations, the goyim, from those who were under the, distinguished between those who were under the covenant over against those who were not, who were on the outside, who were among the nations, so the Gentiles. Now, while circumcision was widely practiced in the ancient Near East, it was usually a rite of passage into adulthood. That's how it was commonly and, and usually found. It was customarily applied to young men at pu puberty. And by its application, uh, when the young man, when the boy matured at puberty, he officially became a man. It marked the transition from being a child to becoming an adult. Old Testament covenant circumcision was entirely different. Uh, it was normally applied to eight-day-old boys, infant boys, and it was designed to distinguish the covenant community from the world, from those who bore the sign of the covenant that God had made and those who did not. Uh, it showed what was necessary in order to be considered to be part uh, of the uh, covenant community. 
I want to pause here for a second because the question oftentimes comes up, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, is that since, since circumcision was applied only to male children, only to males, um, does that leave out 50% of the population in terms of the covenant uh, promises of God? And the answer is no. That the sign of circumcision was a shared sign. Sign of circumcision was a shared sign. That a husband and a wife, when they came together, uh, they shared the sign of the covenant. Uh, and so in this way, generation to generation, um, uh, the uh, covenant promises of God uh, were affirmed uh, within the whole family, between the husband and the wife, and from generation to, uh, to, to, to generation. It was a very appropriate covenant sign because it applied from this generation to the next. Uh, and so it was extremely useful, a vivid application um, uh, of that in terms of the promises of God. Now, the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, sacrament of Passover was also, as we read a moment ago, only given to the people of God. We know that because Exodus 12, 48 and other passage sections that we read a moment ago instructs us that only those who were circumcised, only those who were part of the covenant community were permitted uh, to partake in uh, the sacrament, Old Testament sacrament of Passover. As we turn to the New Testament, um, we again find uh, that the sacraments distinguish the church from the world. In the New Testament, to be baptized is to bear the mark of God's ownership. It is a sign of being part of the community of faith. And that's why in the Great Commission, Jesus commands his followers to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them. What does that mean? Bringing them into the church, setting them apart from the world and bringing them into the church where they can be taught uh, properly to observe all that Jesus has, uh, ha- has commanded. And as we also saw a moment ago when we read through a number of passages, to observe the Lord's Supper is something that Christians do. It's not something the world does. It's something that Christians do as they reaffirm their covenant relationship with God. The Lord's Supper is not given to the world. It is only given to those who can discern the Lord's body, only those who are part of the community uh, of of God's people. So the point here is uh, the sacraments distinguish us from the world, the church from the world. The sacraments are given to us to remind us that we are not our own that we belong to God, that we have been bought with a price, uh, that we belong uh, to, uh, to him. We bear in our baptism the marks of God's ownership of his covenant, uh, covenant status before him. And both baptism and the Lord's Supper point to our being united to Christ and distinguished from the world. So point one. A sacrament uh, is a distinguishing mark of the people of God, distinguishing the church from the world, required, not optional, required by God himself. Second point, the sacrament is an outward physical sign of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of the people of God. The sacraments are not simply distinguishing marks, not simply rites that, that distinguish us, okay? They are also signs or symbols. They contain signs or symbols. Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism 
are signs of cleansing. Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism are signs of cleansing. They witness, both of them, to the fact that we are not acceptable to God in our natural state, but that we need to be cleansed in order to be numbered among the people of God. They point to the cleansing, uh, and they not only point to the need for cleansing, but they point to the cleansing that is available through the gospel and through the covenant of grace. Old Testament Passover and the New Testament Lord's Supper are symbols, also symbols of deliverance. They are memorials that summon us to remember the work of salvation God accomplished in the Exodus and in the cross. You may not have thought about this, but the Old Testament people of God looked back to the Exodus as the primary redemptive event of God, just as you and I look back to the cross as the primary redemptive event of God. And they are parallel. They are memorials that summon us to remember the work of salvation God accomplished in the Exodus and at the cross through the vicarious union of his people with the Lamb of God's provision. And that's why, as Jesus uh, institutes the Lord's Supper uh, in the New Testament, he, he just carries, starts right off, builds right off uh, the Old Testament sacrament of Passover. He says, I've eagerly longed to eat this Passover with you, and now I'm going to explain to you what it really points to. I'm going to explain to you who the Lamb of God's choosing Uh, God's provision really is. Likewise, the Lord's Supper is a sign or symbol of our union together with Christ in his death. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, uh, but uh, that's why we eat the elements. You ever thought about that? Why do we eat uh, the bread and drink the wine? Because the sacrament of the Lord's Supper uh, is a sign or symbol of our being united with Christ. It's not some form of spiritual cannibalism or something like that. It is just that we uh, are reflecting upon and understanding and and symbolizing here that those who uh, are are God's people belong to Christ by virtue of union uh, with him. Baptism, likewise, is also a sign of our union together with Christ. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. And we are all baptized into one body, which is uh, the body uh, of Christ. Okay, So um, they are uh, outward visible signs uh, of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality uh, of God's people. Uh, That we, first of all, ought to be united to Jesus. uh, That we ought to share in the Lamb of God's provision. Now, we need to be very clear about this because sometimes there's confusion. The sacraments do not save. When you get baptized, that doesn't save you. Uh, When you present your children for baptism, that doesn't save them either. Uh, Baptism doesn't save. When you come to the Lord's table, that doesn't save you. That doesn't save you. But they are physical signs or symbols of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of God's people. If you've been baptized, that baptism testifies to you that you ought to be cleansed by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
Likewise, in the Old Testament, Old Testament circumcision pointed not simply to uh, the, 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 the rite of circumcision, but it pointed to a deeper reality, that those who received the rite of circumcision ought to be cleansed. They ought to be circumcised in the heart, uh, that their outward uh, rite ought to be, uh, be carried with or continue with um, an inward, uh, inward uh, reality. If you participate in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper testifies to you that as you come and as you approach this table, you ought to be joined to Jesus. If you come not being joined to Jesus, that's a problem. But if you come being joined to Jesus, that reminds you and reaffirms that deep and wonderful relationship that you have to him that enables you to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness by virtue of union with him. That's also why when we administer baptism to children of believing parents, we ask the parents in the congregation to take vows uh, that they will do their due diligence to instruct their children about the meaning of their baptism, that you should be explaining to your children who have been perhaps baptized as young children or infants that they have been baptized. And that baptism points to their need for cleansing and the cleansing that is provided in the gospel. It's a powerful, powerful testimony to our need and God's provision. So, uh, sacraments are a distinguishing mark of the people of God, required by God himself. Uh, They are an outward uh, sign of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of the people of God. And thirdly, uh, the sacraments are a seal or a guarantee of God's faithfulness to his promises. Sacraments are seals. They certify, they guarantee, they warranty, if we want to use a common notion, the promises of God. They testify to the fact that God will be faithful to the promises that he has made through the covenant. Indeed, they guarantee uh, God's faithfulness uh, in regard to his covenant promises. In Scripture, there are many covenant signs um, in the Old Testament. You may recall the rainbow given to Noah where God made a promise that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And, uh, and he gave a, a, co- a covenant sign, a covenant seal. He would never do it again by the rainbow. It was a covenant sign. The sign of circumcision given to Abraham. You may recall that at the time that God gives that, uh, that uh, circumcision to Abraham, Abraham's on the ropes, you know. Uh, he's been told that he's going to be the father of many nations. Uh, it's not happening. And so what does God do? He gives to him the sign of the covenant of circumcision as a guarantee that he will fulfill all the promises uh, that he has made to Abraham. Uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, you may recall, following uh, Israel's defeat of the Philistines, uh, set the Ebenezer, or the stone of health, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the river uh, as a memorial, as a sign of the Lord's help. Uh, later in the Old Testament, the sign of the virgin birth is given to Ahab, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is a sign uh, that is offered to Ahab, or in fact, placed upon Ahab because he says he doesn't really want any sign. He, was just, he, he wasn't really being humble there. He was, not, he was being rebellious. But so God gives him a sign anyway that he would fulfill all the promises that he has made. It's the sign of the virgin birth. 
Now, in our own culture, we don't have a great deal of covenant signs or seals. The warranties or the guarantees that we usually get when we make a purchase, they oftentimes leave a lot to be desired, and they tend to make us cynical about warranties or or, or guarantees rather than confident in them. However, one candidate might uh, uh, might be offered, the good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, this may date me, okay? I don't know if the good housekeeping seal of approval is still around. I didn't, I didn't check into that. You all know what the good housekeeping seal of approval is. Some of you got good housekeeping uh, and it delivered to your home earlier on. I'm, I used to read my mom's magazine all the time. Um, this, the the seal of, good housekeeping seal of approval uh, was a guarantee, was a seal that Good Housekeeping magazine offered regarding any products that they were advertised in the pages of Good Housekeeping magazine. That if these, these products were advertised in their pages, Good Housekeeping promised to stand by any product that bore the Good Housekeeping seal of approval, even if the manufacturer wouldn't stand by it. Good Housekeeping said, we've tested this, we believe in it, we will stand by it. Uh, we'll refund your money. We'll do whatever uh, is, is necessary. Now, that's the kind of seal I'm talking about, a guarantee that the promises made um, uh, will, uh, will be fulfilled. There is one covenant sign that still has traction in our culture, although it's losing its credibility, and that is the wedding ring, the wedding ring. The minister intones at the, at the wedding ceremony, What token do you give that you will keep these promises and fulfill uh, these vows? The ring. The ring. The ring is that token. It is a seal of the marriage covenant being made. It's designed to summon married couples to uh, faithfulness. Now, it doesn't guarantee that, but that's what it's about. And it's an appropriate analogy for us because the Bible describes our covenant relationship to God and Christ as very much like a marriage covenant. In the Old Testament, God married Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, And although Israel was not a faithful spouse, um, God was a faithful bridegroom. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5, often quoted at weddings, draws an analogy between a husband and wife and between Christ and his church. And the analogy is so tightly woven that it's impossible to determine uh, which term of the analogy has priority. That is, it's impossible to determine whether the relationship between uh, a husband and a wife should be patterned after the relationship between Christ and his church or whether the relationship between Christ and his church is patterned after the relationship between a husband and wife. You can't can't tell. They're just so, so tightly, tightly intertwined. But... You know, and in human marriage, we're not always faithful. But God is faithful in the covenant relationship that he sustains and covenant marriage relationship he sustains to his people. Hebrews tells us that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot uh, deny himself. And the sacraments are a pledge of that, that God is faithful to all the promises that he has made. The sacraments are our wedding ring from God. 
And we, while we may not be all that good at holding up our end of the, bar, uh, the bargain or the, of the relationship, God is always faithful. He's always faithful. Now, the seal nature of the sacraments is also one reason why we believe it is appropriate to apply the sign of the covenant of baptism to children of believing parents. I said I wasn't going to get into controversy, and I'm not really, but I just want to take a moment to see how these basic notions apply to at least one issue that comes before the church. Our Baptist friends, and I use that term deliberately, our Baptist friends are convinced that baptism is a badge or sign of human faith. Now, if they're right about that, uh, then they are right to only apply baptism to those who make profession of faith. And, and our Baptist friends are committed to that because they, they're desirous to preserve and protect the notion of justification by faith. They're zealous for it, and they believe that it has an application here as it applies to baptism, that baptism is a badge uh, of, uh, of human faith. And if they're right, they're right. Um, uh, um, we should only apply baptism to those who make a profession of faith. That's what's known as the believer's Baptist position. However, we within the Reformed community see baptism not as a sign of human faith, but as a seal of God's faithfulness to his promises. It is therefore appropriate to apply the sign of the new covenant to children of believing parents, just as it was appropriate to apply the covenant sign or seal of circumcision uh, to infant uh, boys in the Old Testament. Both are seals of God's faithfulness uh, to his covenant promises. But be clear about this. If we baptize our children, they must still rise up and embrace the gospel for themselves uh, uh, that, that their baptism testifies to their need for cleansing and the cleansing that's provided in the gospel. Just like the Old Testament children who were physically circumcised still needed to rise up and embrace the covenant, faith of the covenant community and to be experienced circumcision of the heart, the cleansing that comes from regeneration uh, and conversion. But their baptism, our children as they receive baptism, testifies of them that God is faithful to all his promises, that Jesus stands ready to receive them as they receive uh, the gospel promises. And that is why we apply the, the sign of the, the covenant in the New Testament, the sign of baptism to children of, of believing parents. Okay, got the big picture, got the three elements. Now let me try to um, make some really penetrating and practical applications here. Because the sacraments distinguish us from the world, testify to what our inward reality should be, and assure us of God's faithfulness, they are of great practical importance. And there's lots of things we could talk about. Tonight, I just want to talk about two. The sacraments are of great practical importance in the area of the assurance of salvation and resisting temptation. Assurance of salvation and resisting temptation. First, their help and assurance. I don't know very many of you here this evening. I don't know how you're doing personally or spiritually. I've been a pastor for 47 years, um, and I know a lot of people struggle. And I suspect that there are many out there who may be struggling with your faith or have been struggling with your faith for a long time. I want to give you some good news tonight, that both 
your baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are meant to be a source of tremendous comfort, encouragement, and assurance, and to encourage you to lay hold uh, of that application. Uh, Perhaps you're filled with, with doubts and fears. Maybe you really wonder, you know, is, 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 is it all true? And you're struggling, uh, struggling with that. Uh, perhaps you have sinned. Perhaps you have committed what you consider a big sin. Or you've committed the one big sin that has dominated your life, has caused you to wonder many times whether or not you are savable whether you are beyond the reach of the grace of God and the gospel. Well, my friends, wonder no longer. Agonize no longer. Yes, you are. Appeal to your baptism. You bear on your body the absolute guarantee regarding the cleansing that you need and the cleansing that is provided through Jesus. It's an absolute guaranteed slam dunk certainty. This evening as you approach the Lord's table, appeal to the Lord's table. It carries with it Jesus' guarantee that his body was given for you. Uh, that his blood was shed as the, as, as the new covenant in his blood for the remission of all your sins. They are seals. Uh, they are guarantees that God is faithful to all of his promises. Lay hold of them. You have doubts? Look to your baptism because your baptism points you to Jesus. You wonder whether you're savable? Look to your baptism. Look to the Lord's Supper uh, because they point you to Jesus and they answer that question with a resounding yes. Yes, you are. And that the arms of heaven, the arms of the Lord Jesus are open to receive you no matter where you are and no matter what sin you've committed as you come and repent uh, to, to him. They're a tangible pledge and guarantee that if we confess our sins, God is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all uh, unrighteousness. Appeal to the sacraments. The second major application that I just present to you briefly tonight is there assistance in the hour of temptation? There assistance in the hour of temptation. That's why it's so vital that we live uh, self-consciously regarding the sacraments day by day, moment by moment, all our lives. If you are wrestling with temptation, if you are being tempted or pressured to do what you know is wrong or ungodly, lay hold of the sacraments. They are a tremendous source of strength in the day of temptation. You young people out there, um, perhaps some of you are being pressured to engage in activity that you know is contrary to God's will and purposes for you. And I've been around for a long time. We know how that works, right? Perhaps friends are encouraging you to engage in substance abuse. And you're feeling the pressure. You want to be a part of the group. You don't want to disappoint them. But you know in your heart of hearts, you know, this, is, this isn't what God wants for me. 
Perhaps your boyfriend or girlfriend is pressuring you to engage in, in sexual activity that you know is not appropriate or permissible at this stage of your life and your status uh, as, as a single per- person. And when they pressure you and you say, if you love me, you would. And you say, uh, I can't, I can't do it. And then when they press you further and they say, why not? Tell them, because I've been baptized. That'll slow them down. And it's a great answer. Um, you know, there used to be a sweatshirt that they were selling for a while. I don't know if it's still available. Um, trying to encourage uh, uh, young people to, uh, uh, to, to, to sexual uh, um, purity. It said, just say no. Just say no. Okay. Um, I would like to suggest a modification. Okay. On the front, it would say, don't just say no. And on the back, it would say, say no. I've been baptized. <laughs> I don't mean to pick on the young people, though. Um, because what you struggle with, we all struggle with. And what is true of you young people is also true of all the adults out there, and you and I all know it. I don't know what form of temptation you might be facing at the moment. Maybe it's temptation to immorality. Maybe it's temptation to unfaithfulness. Maybe it's a temptation to steal. Um, We're coming on to April here. Maybe it's a temptation to cheat on your taxes. Don't do it. Resist. Say, no, I've been baptized. I can't do this. Say, no, I've communed with the Lord Jesus at his table. I can't do this. And you know, by God's grace, if you lay hold of that, if you see things clearly in just that way, I don't think you will. I think the Spirit will help you through the instrumentality of the sacraments that the Lord has given to us to stand firm in the day of temptation and to seek to live a life that is pleasing from God. You're distinguished from the world. You are united to Jesus. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and your life. You were once slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness. You bear visible signs on the outside of what ought to be true on the inside. You are united to Christ. You have been cleansed. You have been changed. God is faithful to save. He will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear. Lay hold of the sacraments. Because they give you real help. Help when we're doubting. Help when we're struggling. uh, Help when we're discouraged. Help when we're tempted. Real help. I began this message by asking you a question, whether this morning you bounded out of bed this morning and said, boy, I'm glad I'm baptized. Um, I did, you all admitted you didn't. I didn't have any takers on that one. Uh, then you also basically admitted that you never have. And I get it. I get it. And truth be told, I'm not as good about bounding out of bed and saying I'm glad I'm baptized any more than any of you are. But let me say this. I hope tomorrow you will. 
I hope tomorrow you will bound out of bed, throw your hands up in the air and praise to God and say, I'm so glad I've been baptized. I'm so glad we had the Lord's Supper last night. What a blessing. And I hope this evening as we have opportunity to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that you will be reminded of how this supper distinguishes you from the world. How it is an outward symbol of what ought to be the inward spiritual reality of the people of God. That you ought to be joined to Jesus. And how it is a seal or guarantee of God's faithfulness to his promises. Amen? Amen. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the way that you have made provision for us in so many ways. Uh, That in the ordinary means of grace, you have given us your word that explains to us what we are to believe concerning you and how we are to appropriately respond to you. Uh, That you have given to us the, the gift of prayer by which we might approach you and cast all of our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, uh, and that you have given us, given us your sacraments, which, which protect us, which separate, separate us from the world, which testify continuously is to what we ought to be and how we ought to function, and which reminds us that although we are faithless and although we oftentimes uh, uh, lose our way and we oftentimes sin, that you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself and and that you have given us that token of your faithfulness and the sacraments that you have provided. Help us to never forget these things. Help us every time we witness a baptism to be reminded of our own. Help us every time that we come to the Lord's table uh, to be grateful uh, for this gift of the sacraments that you have provided for us. And we give you all the glory and all the thanks for your kind provision for us. Amen. I believe there's a song response, and you're there waiting on me. Okay, and can it be?